Welcome to The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the Editor-in-Chief of Investopedia and your guide and fellow traveler on our journey into what it means to be a green investor today and where this investing theme is headed in the future. In this episode, insurance goes under the microscope in the wake of Hurricane Ian's destruction through Florida and the southeastern seaboard. Who pays, who doesn't, and what is the future for flood and natural disaster insurance in the era of climate change? We'll talk to an expert. But first, And always, this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Let's do the news. CEOs are putting many of their ESG goals on hold as they try to prepare their businesses for the fallout from a possible recession, according to a study conducted by KPMG. About half of CEOs surveyed said they are pausing or reconsidering their existing or planned ESG efforts in the next six months, according to the survey. Roughly a third have already done so. More than eight of 10 global CEOs anticipate a recession within the next 12 months, so says the survey, so spending resources on ESG goals that aren't fully defined within regulatory frameworks is slipping down the list of priorities, especially as investor skepticism around environmental, social, and governance priorities continues to grow. In a separate survey by Capital.com, a London-based online broker, traders and investors aren't prioritizing ESG either. Of more than 1,800 customers asked, 52% of traders and investors said they never selected a stock or made a trade based on ESG factors. Almost half, or 46%, said they didn't know how to do so, and 12% said ESG investments were too expensive. As gas prices in Europe continue to climb amid sanctions against Russian oil, European Union member states backed a compromise to use permits from the bloc's carbon market to help finance a shift away from Russian fossil fuels. Finance ministers gathering in Luxembourg approved a compromise plan drawn up by the Czech government, which holds the EU's rotating presidency to free up to 20 billion euros or $19.8 billion of carbon allowances. About 75% would come from the bloc's innovation fund, with the rest made available from front-loaded auctions. The money from the emissions trading system comes alongside leftover loans from the bloc's recovery fund, which member states can now use to help boost renewables and the fossil fuel infrastructure needed to rid the EU of its dependence on Russian energy. The U.S. Bureau of Reclamation announced new measures in response to the ongoing dry conditions in the western part of the United States that relies on the Colorado River, unveiling plans to use a chunk of the $4 billion it received as part of the recently passed Inflation Reduction Act. That money will be used for what the agency refers to as short-term conservation to remove water-intensive grass in cities and suburbs and to upgrade aging canals. A detailed breakdown of that spending has yet to be released, but KUNC News in Colorado reports that the bulk of the reclamation's $4 billion will go to projects in the Colorado River Basin, with the majority going to system conservation. That could include buying water from the agricultural sector to boost water levels in the nation's largest reservoirs. That funding may be used as part of a voluntary program in which farmers and ranchers can make a pitch to the federal government offering to pause growing in exchange for payments of $300 to $400 per acre foot of water. Those payments are expected to be temporary, mainly focused in the river's lower basin states, and may someday give way to more permanent, higher-value federal payments in exchange for water. The U.S. Federal Reserve has announced a pilot program that will assess six of the nation's largest banks' exposure to climate risk. This as regulators push to ensure that large financial companies are resilient to emerging threats. 
Bank of America, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, and Wells Fargo will participate in the Climate Scenario Analysis Program, the Fed said, noting that the plan is designed to enhance the ability of supervisors and firms to measure and manage climate-related financial risks. The exercise is, quote, exploratory in nature and does not have capital consequences, the Fed emphasized in its announcement. It added that the scenario analysis can assist firms and supervisors in understanding how climate-related financial risks may manifest and differ from historical experience. The Bank of England has already run a similar exercise with its member banks. The pilot exercise will be launched in early 2023 and is expected to conclude around the end of the year. At the beginning of the exercise, the board will publish details of the climate, economic, and financial variables that make up the climate scenario narratives. We'll be looking forward to seeing that list for sure. Hurricane Ian ravaged Florida's West Coast, claiming dozens of lives and costing tens of billions of dollars in economic losses from heavy rainfall, storm surge, and flooding. If you were a property homeowner in Florida and you were lucky enough to have coverage for flooding, you may be made whole on your losses. But who covers the insurance companies that have to pay out these losses, and why would any insurer want to offer coverage in areas that are prone to hurricanes, flooding, and other natural disasters? Fitch Ratings evaluates the credit risk for companies across all sectors and countries, including insurance and reinsurance companies. Brian Schneider is the Senior Director for Insurance for Fitch, and he joins us this week on The Green Investor. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Fitch came out recently with damage estimates for Hurricane Ian that put losses between $25 and $40 billion. That was last week before the hurricane really made its way across the state. But the estimates could go even higher depending on the damage done through Florida and up through the Carolinas, Brian. First of all, how does your group come up with that number? Yeah, basically, we look at the various insurance companies and reinsurance companies that we cover sort of looking at what their market share looks like, what the comparable storms are from previous uh, large storms. Uh, we also consult with the uh, the various uh, modelers. So there's a handful of modelers that really have a lot of detailed data, the individual insurance policies, and they're able to sort of come up with estimates based on uh, a lot of sophisticated modeling. So they've also come up with various estimates uh, in the last few days as well. And Interestingly, they've upped their estimates from the initial uh, look at what was coming through a few days ago, and you know, some of their estimates are uh, up uh, near $60 billion at this time. Yeah, I mean, the pictures alone are devastating. The loss of life, obviously, is terrible, and the loss of property, it just seems unfathomable when you look at some of those images and the things we're not even seeing right now. But describe for us the homeowner's insurance dynamic in Florida today. A lot of the major carriers don't operate there. Why not? And what is the situation right now in the state? Yeah, that's very true. Uh, And that's been going on for quite a bit of time. A lot of the larger companies really got wiped out from some of the previous hurricanes that came through Florida. And there's just very difficult for them to be able to make a profit there uh, long term. So even even in years where there aren't big losses, which there really haven't been anything uh, that big over the last four or five years in Florida, certainly we had uh, Irma in 2017 and and Michael in uh, in 2018. But really, the the large losses are coming through for the catastrophes. But in those years that we don't have losses, companies still aren't making money because there's quite a bit of issue with fraud and assignment of benefit concerns in uh, in Florida, just so that there's a, a lot of litigation that uh, that comes through and just makes it makes it difficult. One stat that I saw recently was that if you, I think this was going back to 2019, if you look at the amount of litigation, Florida represented about 8% of all homeowners claims in the U.S. back in 2019, but 76% of the litigation against insurers came from the, uh, the state of Florida. So that comes from the uh, NEIC, which uh, uh, regulates the insurance companies across the U.S. So it's really issues in litigation that they've tried to uh, address uh, in various uh, legislation 
sessions over the last uh, several years. But for one, it takes time for those those sort of adjustments to to come through and and to help the insurance market. But then also they really, uh, in a lot of ways, have not gone far enough to be able to make it so that there's less litigation in the uh, in the state itself. Citizens Insurance is one of the big insurers there. It operates out of there. It was estimating pre-storm that's going to have to cover some 150,000 claims that could go up to 3.7 billion losses just from wind damage alone. But a lot of property owners can't get flood insurance, right? They can't get catastrophic insurance or national disaster insurance. How are they getting their mortgages underwritten? How does the system operate? So many people have moved to Florida. So many people have second homes there. Are people who just don't have insurance flying blind and waiting for disasters like this to keep happening? Yeah, I mean, to the extent that they do have mortgages, they will uh, need to have uh, insurance for that. You know, there are individuals that go down there, you know, maybe they have a second home and they don't don't have a mortgage, so they're not required to buy insurance. They can be difficult to get insurance. Citizens is there to be able to provide that state-sponsored insurer of last resort type insurance. So, uh, but their coverage uh, sometimes is, is not really up to a level that you would need it to, depending on the, uh, the value of their home. They're not really uh, meant to, to try to provide coverage for uh, for those type of homes. So there is a and there is a private market, a surplus lines market that operates in uh, in Florida and does provide uh, insurance for those. But it you know, it is a very very expensive to be able to do that, and it can be difficult to provide to find consistent coverage for uh, those type of homes. Other options are maybe more specific, as you mentioned, to flood, because that's really where there is concerns where uh, where the losses can be uh, you know, such a, a big piece of the overall insurance losses. When we look at uh, insurance losses, we really don't think about flood too much from a private insurance uh, standpoint, because the flood market is relatively small for private insurers. It's really all insured through the uh, National Flood Insurance Program, uh, the NFIP, and that is where uh, there's not a huge amount of, uh, of take-up rate with flood insurance. I think I saw that only about 13% uh, statewide have uh, have flood coverage, maybe a little bit higher in those uh, areas that were in fact that were affected by by Ian, but it's just something that a lot of uh, a lot of individuals just don't buy. In a recent report your group says this disaster is a reinsurance event. Explain to our listeners what you mean by that. Who are these reinsurance companies and how can they absorb losses if we're really talking about 60 billion dollars? How can a reinsurance company absorb that? We know Warren Buffett at Berkshire Hathaway, they own a very big reinsurance company. Swiss Re is a very big reinsurance company. But just simply explain the dynamic. How does it work? How do these costs get passed on? And ultimately, who pays? Yeah, so there is uh, several layers. So you have the policyholders, obviously. So they'll buy policies from the insurance companies. But then the insurance companies don't want a huge accumulation of risk, although they're not a big uh, player in the market. Look at companies like you know Allstate that do have losses uh, in, in some of the areas you know they have aggregation of uh, catastrophe risk across the whole the whole country, and and they don't want to have to have the uh, the losses if there is a, a large event like we like we saw with this. So uh, so what they'll do is they'll buy their own insurance from what are called reinsurers. So as you mentioned, uh, you know some of the big ones being uh, National Indemnity with Warren Buffett's company Berkshire Hathaway. They mentioned uh, Swiss, but then Munich. Uh, there's a lot of big European reinsurers that have quite a bit of capital, and they have the uh, the ability to be able to withstand these type of losses, but you know, over time, investors in the uh, in these reinsurance companies you know, have issue with having to have these claims uh, year in and year out. So we've seen heightened catastrophe losses over the last five years or so. Essentially, since uh, since 2017, there's been quite a bit of uh, catastrophe losses. So uh, I know they have to go and explain to their investors every year why you know why losses are uh, above average, and it really has taken a uh, a toll on their uh, on their stock price and their for the most part, uh, trading below book value um, in recent periods because of the 
concern that these catastrophes will continue in the future. And we've seen periods in the past where there have been low periods of catastrophes. And that's really how they're able to make money in the uh, in the long term is, is they expect that there's going to be uh, certain years uh, where there is uh, lower levels of catastrophe where they can make up for those years where they are paying uh, extra claims and they are having underwriting losses. So, and one other layer that as actually on top of that, that impacts uh, both of the layers beneath it is what they call retrocession. And that's when the reinsurance companies go and buy uh, insurance for themselves as well. So that's a smaller, more niche market. But a lot of these uh, entities that that insure the reinsurance companies are really the capital markets. So you'll have various insurance linked securities that investors, certain more private investors, high net worth individuals will get involved in to provide that uh, capacity to the to the reinsurers to the extent that these reinsurers don't want to have as much risk either. And that's another area where we've seen a lot of uh, price increases. Uh, we've seen a lot of capacity decline in the uh, in the retrocession or the what we call the retro market. So if the reinsurance companies are unable to to transfer risk to the retro market and the uh, insurance companies are seeing less ability to transfer risk to the reinsurance companies that uh, don't want to have the uh, the extra claims and it really all flows down to the ultimate policyholder. So you know, at the end of the day, the policyholder is the one that ultimately has to uh, come up with what the losses are for any particular area because that's really uh, you know how insurance works is it's trying to spread the risk across a, uh, a wide range. So that way, any one individual will not be uh, devastated by the risk. But the problem is with the uh, state of Florida, just given the geography of it, it's in a path of hurricanes. And to the extent that we don't have uh, these quiet periods where uh, both the insurance companies and the reinsurance companies can build up uh, profits and build up capital when there is low activity, if we don't have those anymore, then it just makes it very, very difficult for the for the market to be able to work, because if you're having high losses every year, then it just becomes very, very difficult to be able to afford the insurance premiums for these policyholders, and it just becomes an affordability issue. And that's where the government gets involved, where they obviously want to have people uh, living in Florida, they want to have people coming to uh, to Florida, and to the extent that the insurance is just too expensive uh, for that, which uh, may just be the nature of the accumulation of losses are just going to require uh, high insurance premiums. Uh, you know, I talked a little bit about the potential for fraud, but you know, I think in the long term, the amount of uh, catastrophes that we're going to see um, in Florida and, and potentially other areas that we've seen, you know, in, in other parts of the world, just makes it that much more difficult to be able to uh, to ensure that. All right, you're you're leading right into my question, which is: as climate change contributes to more and more deadly and costly disasters, what does that mean for insurance companies, their credit risk? And the exposure to investors. This is what you do at Fitch Ratings. You're looking at that risk. You're rating these companies. And I know you don't rate a lot of the companies that are in Florida because a lot of the companies aren't in Florida, but this is going to be a nationwide and planetary thing. So how does Fitch even think about this in the in the era of climate change? Yeah, so we talk to all our uh, insurance and reinsurance companies that we rate. They provide us with uh, detailed data that they get from the various modelers that I was talking about. So we have a an idea of what type of exposure that they may have to catastrophes in any in any given year that has definitely uh, increased over the last several years. A lot of what they've been doing, though, in, in recent times has been managing those uh, those numbers down. They're just writing less business in catastrophe uh, type areas. And we've seen increases in uh, what they call these secondary perils. So you know, the ones that tend to get more of the big headlines are those, you know, the hurricanes and the earthquakes and things like that. But in recent years, uh, we've seen a lot more exposure from say wildfires you know we had the Texas winter storm last year that was just a very a very unusual event so we're getting these more 
secondary, what they call secondary type perils that maybe aren't on the as big on the uh, on the radar screen of the uh, of the modeler. So those are the type of things that are are causing more concern. And you know, to the extent that climate change is impacting these, it's it's likely to to only increase. So fortunately, the companies are able to really manage their uh, their business to be able to you know, reduce the, uh, the level of property risk that they have. They, a lot of these companies have maybe shifted away from property and more into, uh, you know, to say uh, casualty and specialty type business, which uh, doesn't have that, that property type, uh, type risk exposure. So I guess the good news is that these insurance companies can, can really manage that risk down to a certain extent. Uh, you know, they're able to, to raise prices and they have raised prices over the last, uh, over the last several years. And, and at least at this point, they've been able to um, raise prices, to a level, uh, and I'm talking more nationally. You know, Florida is a more specific issue, but you know, nationally, these companies have been able to raise prices faster than the uh, than the claims costs have been have increased. But you would expect that maybe after a certain amount of time, that there'll be rate fatigue for some of the uh, businesses and and homeowners that are buying policies, and could run into issues where uh, you know the competitive environment will allow uh, additional rate increases. What's the worst case scenario you're modeling for as it relates to climate and natural disaster related issues at Fitch Ratings? If we kind of look at where the uh, catastrophe losses have come through, you know, we're averaging uh, over a hundred billion dollar type of average over the last uh, last five years. Um, you know, it was up as high as 150 billion in uh, in 2017. Uh, that's when we had uh, hurricanes uh, Harvey, Irma, and Maria coming through. Each one of those were Know, over 30 billion loss type of events. As far as the uh, you know extreme type events, you know those get a bit more difficult to really be be precise about. When we look at our um, our analysis within Fitch, what we do is we actually look across the entire curve of events that companies uh, provide us with. So all the way from uh, you know an annual type event to uh, to say uh, you know a one in 250 year type of an event. So it, it's going to vary company by company as to how uh, how they're able to withstand that. You know, we think the industry is capable of uh, withstanding, um, say, up to a one in 100 year model type of a uh, type of a loss event. Beyond that uh, would have to be a, uh, a likely uh, capital raising um, event for the industry. The bad news is as large as uh, these losses have been the, uh, you know, the last several years, um, they're probably more considered to be, uh, you know, maybe a one in one in five, one in 10 type of event. So, you know, there could be a significant event. You know, that is more of a, a true one in 100 type of a year. And, you know, there are various uh, mechanisms that we've talked about where companies can, can manage that through the, uh, you know, through the reinsurance and other type of economic managing tools. But it's something that, uh, you know, could potentially happen. And I think uh, companies are in a fairly good position to be able to uh, absorb those things. It's really more these unknown type of events that can hurt uh, these uh, insurance companies. Because those, the ones that we think about, the ones that we model, you know, the one in 100 type of year events, the hurricanes, the earthquakes, assuming that the models are fairly accurate with these things, uh, those are the items that the insurance companies can price for. If they know it's, it's, it's a potential, then they, you know, they price that into their, uh, into their policies. It's more of these unknown type of things that, that cause the industry more pain. Um, you know, are there going to be more events like we saw with the, uh, you know, with the deep freeze in, in the South last year? You know, are there going to be more wildfires, that sort of thing where, those are the type of things that are not necessarily being priced into the uh, into the market now. So, continuation of additional catastrophe losses is a is a real possibility, and, and companies are trying to respond by uh, increasing rates uh, to be able to capture that. But you know, at some point, it may be may be difficult to increase rates much more. 
Well, let's see if we get any more of those one in 100 type events, but it feels like they're coming more and more frequently. We appreciate your analysis and your insight. Brian Schneider, the Senior Director for Insurance for Fitch Ratings. Thanks so much for joining The Green Investor. Thank you for having me. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show where we get to dig into fascinating facts, figures, and phenomena within the world of green investing. And this week, we're going back to court. U.S. Supreme Court, that is, as the Clean Water Act heads to the bench. The case, Sackett versus the Environmental Protection Agency, was presented to the court this past Monday, the first day of the court's new term, although the decision will be announced later this year. Here are the details of the case, which is being brought by the plaintiffs Chantel and Michael Sackett. The Sacketts bought a parcel of land in Idaho 17 years ago, and in 2007 started filling it with dirt and rock in preparation for building a house. The EPA ordered them to stop, saying the property was subject to the Clean Water Act and they needed a permit. The government threatened fines of more than $40,000 per day if the couple did not stop construction. The couple went to court to block the EPA order and actually won a unanimous judgment by the Supreme Court in 2012. That was later overturned in a 2021 ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, which sided with the EPA. Environmental groups have been concerned that the new conservative supermajority on the Supreme Court took up this case specifically to narrow the scope of the Clean Water Act, just as it did in June with its decision in West Virginia versus the EPA. That, as you remember, did limit the powers of the EPA in its ability to regulate power plants, as we covered in this podcast back in July. The Sacketts are represented by the Pacific Legal Foundation and backed by industry groups, including the National Association of Home Builders and the American Petroleum Institute. Earth Justice, an environmental group that has joined the case, filed an amicus brief for the government on behalf of 18 Indian tribes who say wetlands in that area are integral to their culture and their resources. At its most basic level, the lawsuit is a challenge to WOTUS, acronym alert, that's the Waters of the United States threshold term that is in the Clean Water Act and establishes the scope of federal jurisdiction under the act. The Sacketts, for their part, dispute that their lot is included in WOTUS since it has a water and sewer hookup. We'll see how the court handles this case, but it is fascinating how one family's backyard has become the battleground for a law that has been around since 1972. It's time to unpack the acronym, that part of the show where we get to deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green investing. And this week, we're talking SLBs, or Sustainability Linked Bonds. Sustainability Linked Bonds, according to the International Capital Markets Association, or any type of bond instrument for which the financial and or structural characteristics can vary depending on whether the issuer achieves predefined sustainability or ESG objectives. In that sense, issuers are thereby committed explicitly, including in the bond documentation, to future improvements in sustainability outcomes within a predefined timeline. SLBs are about a $450 billion market today, just a fraction of the $22 billion corporate bond market, but they have been growing steadily over the years. And, as you can imagine, SLBs are also one of the financial products that companies may be using in an effort to both raise money and greenwash their businesses to appear more environmentally friendly to their investors and their consumers. Bloomberg News has a fascinating expose on SLBs used by companies including Chanel and Tesco, among others, which we will link to in the show notes. Bloomberg analyzed more than 100 SLBs worth almost 70 billion euro that were sold by global companies to investors in Europe, the most mature market for sustainable finance products, and they found that the majority are tied to climate targets that are weak, irrelevant, or even already achieved. The result, researchers say, is that companies are getting something for nothing. Cheaper financing and an enhanced green reputation come without any real effort to deliver on climate goals and no chance of financial penalty. We'll go out this week, as we always do, celebrating this week in environmental history. 
It's the anniversary of World Animal Day, commemorated on October 5th, starting in 1931, after it was proposed at a conference of ecologists in Florence, Italy. The day is meant to tie the feast of the day of St. Francis of Assisi to modern concerns about biodiversity and animal welfare. St. Francis is a pretty big deal in Florence, and it's pretty cool that World Animal Day is connected to his special day as well. Happy World Animal Day. Thanks for joining us this week on The Green Investor, and we're going to post the transcript to our interview with Brian Schneider of Fitch Ratings and all the links to the reports we cited in the show notes. You can find those wherever you listen to this podcast and on investopedia.com slash The Green Investor Podcast. A little programming note, check out my other podcast, The Investopedia Express, every Monday to help you get set up for the week. Next Monday, tune in for a special conversation with Vivek Ramaswamy, author of Woke Inc. and Nation of Victims. Vivek makes the case against stakeholder capitalism, one of the tenets of green investing, and why he thinks it's one of the great frauds in capital markets today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a fresh episode of The Green Investor. And until such time, keep it green. Hey!